Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill, and I am joined today and every Tuesday and Friday by none other than my good friend and Mr. Canadian Real Estate himself, Daniel Foch. What's going on, Dan? You have a good Christmas? Yeah, it was good. Great Christmas holiday. Great New Year's. Excited to start a new year, another year of this podcast. And I think it's like one of those times of year where everybody kind of sets those those goals and starts thinking about what they want to do for the year and for the future. And I think, you know, a lot of people want to do deals this year. And so what we're <laughs> going to be talking about today is doing deals, especially a type of transaction that everybody wants to hear about. Today, we are going to be talking about distressed properties, especially foreclosures and powers of sale. Isn't Shark Week in July though? Well, you know how the saying goes, buy whenever there's blood in the water. I think it's by when there's blood in the streets, actually. I think it's kind of the same thing when half the country is either drowning in debt or treading water and in inflation, thanks to monetary policy. Yep, that's true. Based on the questions I'm being asked and the sentiment that I'm hearing and the data that I'm, I'm seeing, the perfect week for sharks in the real estate industry could actually happen this year. But in all honesty, folks, we don't encourage ambulance chasing or bottom feeding on this show. Sharks eat bottom feeders anyways. <laughs> However, the data is showing an increase in VTBs or vendor take back mortgages. So for those of you who want to know what that is, episode 46, we go through it in pretty solid detail. We are seeing an increase of VTBs being offered in the market. And we're also seeing an increase in power of sale listings in some markets as well. So today we're going to give you a lowdown on how to find and buy those specific distressed properties and what those distressed sellers might be looking for in offers based on their position. So how to offer on these properties based on what we know about you know that distress, let's call it in, in quotation marks. There are a few data points specifically that made me want to do this episode. But before we do that, Dan, I want to just stop you right there for a second. We have a little bit of news, a little bit of housekeeping. We've made it an easy, cost-effective way to support the show and you get immense value for it. As requested by many of you, our wonderful listeners, we've started recording our podcast and show notes on videos. You can watch them all and you can see all the research we're doing as we present it. You can see all the charts that we're referencing, all the links, the articles, and even our ugly mugs as we record and make stupid faces and take a sip of water, sneak a yawn or a cough in. You'll get to see all the behind the scenes stuff. So it's available for subscription on Patreon, similar to how our podfathers have their joint TCI program. We plan to have a lot of great stuff on here, deal of the day, all the show notes. So check it out, guys, and let us know what else you want to see on the Patreon. You'll also get all of the episodes before they go live on the audio platforms. So because we have a third party edit the podcast audio to make sure it sounds exceptionally good, we will have the video as soon as we're done the recording and I'll turn those over as soon as humanly possible. We're going to release probably 10 minutes of each episode seems to be kind of the proper time slot for YouTube. If you want to get a taste of what we'll be doing for these, you can kind of get a 10 minute segment rather than the full version, but the full episode will be available to subscribers. And I think we also want to discuss the events that we have coming up, Nick. Yeah, for sure. So 
Full disclosure, we've got a large amount of goals this year as well, Dan, for the podcast, don't we? And one of those major items is events, cross-country events. So we did hold our first two in Calgary and Edmonton. They were awesome, an amazing time. We've already gotten deals out of them. We're working with people out there to help them get deals, introduce them to the right people. And now actually the Calgary and Edmonton events are kind of self-sufficient. So we've got a Calgary event January 20th and the third Friday of every month. And these will, I'll put these, uh, these meetup links in the show notes. We've also got an Edmonton event January 25th in the last Wednesday of every month. Now, full disclosure, Dan and I aren't going to be there for those events. For most of them, we're probably not going to be there for a lot of the events that we have eventually get set up. But what we want to do is get these events set up, go to the first couple, and then start to be able to come back every couple of months as we kind of make our way back and forth across the country. But I guess the real goal for these events is to kind of have them a bit of, you know, self-sufficient so that the people that are going are creating that community. And Dan and I are lucky enough to drop in every once in a while, every couple of months to you know, make sure things are going smoothly and, and hopefully meet everybody. Yeah, for sure. I think the goal really is for them to become self-sustaining meetups where people can meet one another, they can learn from one another, they can put together. I mean, we are smart enough to know that we're not the smartest people in this industry and that, <laughs> you know, the more people we can bring together, the more panelists we can bring in, the more events and networks and connections that we can make are you know, is that's how we will be able to create value for our listeners more than we can outside of, you know, just doing these podcasts on a weekly basis, twice a week basis. You know, we can talk until the cows come home, literally about real estate. We're pretty good at it, but we can't make those connections. We can't be boots on the ground. We can't be in 20 or 30 different Canadian cities at once. And so we want this community to kind of build itself. It's uh, That's really one of our goals for this year. I think I want to create maybe a little bit of context around what we're going to be talking about today, this episode. And, you know, if you listen to a lot of the real estate investment lore, you've probably heard about people looking for distressed properties, more specifically the buying of foreclosed properties. Everyone's always asking me how to find foreclosures in Ontario. Well, the truth is they actually don't really exist in Ontario, but we're going to get to that later. So I did some research seeing whether or not we're seeing an increase in distressed property listings, and we are, in Ontario at least. But before we get to that specifically, I want to set the stage a little bit by mentioning a little cultural norm in the real estate industry called the three Ds of real estate. Nick? <laughs> the three Ds of real estate, death, divorce, and Daniel Foch. Wait, no, that's not right. Just kidding. Death, divorce, and debt. And starting to sound a bit like ambulance chasing that you mentioned here, Dan. Yeah, the well, let's start off with death then. The owner of a property dies and the estate who is inheriting the property decides to sell the property, usually because they can't afford probate or the taxes and need to dispose of an asset to fund the real estate transition or transaction because you often have to pay tax in the transfer. Probate is the approval process that takes place in Canada, which validates your will and confirms the appointment of your executor of the will. So that's the person who will kind of distribute all of the assets within the estate. This process is usually undertaken by an experienced and expensive legal professional. Let's move on to the second D, divorce. No one loves talking about it, but it is a very relevant subject these days. So you've got a property, the two owners are divorcing, that leaves them with two choices. Either they do a buyout or they agree to sell the property. 
So it's actually funny. Did you see that Instagram story by Jeff Margolis? He was like, Dan's the kind of guy who goes to weddings and is like, yeah. you know, 50% of these end in divorce, eh? <laughs> Are they, hey, statistically, leading cause of divorce is marriage. There you go. You're not making a speech at my wedding, there, uh, by the way. <laughs> I feel like the debt part's pretty much self-explanatory, but it can end in two different formats, which is foreclosure versus power of sale, which we're going to get to. They're distinctly different and should be handled as such. Yeah, so each one of these types of transactions can be fickle and they require a different set of gloves to handle. For example, if you're trying to buy an estate from an estate, the estate is likely working with a lawyer, a trustee, or an executor to communicate the offer to its inheritors, essentially brokering the deal. Estates are complicated and they have to follow a very specific process. And that goes something like this, authenticating the will, appointing an executor or representative, posting a bond, locating the dead person's assets, determining the date of death values, identifying and notifying creditors, paying debts, preparing and filing tax returns. Then finally, you get to distribute the real estate. Or sorry, not even the real estate, just the estate. And hopefully there's real estate in the estate. So estate sales may not be looking for more complications per se. They like clean offers with very few conditions. They're typically not in a hurry because the property can't close until the process is complete and they don't know when that is. So estate sales value flexible closings rather than fast closings, even though the house is probably vacant. And for people selling estates, they can be a lot less price dependent because you have to remember they're getting a windfall of money that they weren't really anticipating. And it comes with a period of grief. I mean, someone literally died. On the other hand, in a divorce, each divorcee is likely being advised independently by a lawyer who's basically translating your offer to the sellers. They may care less about the conditions and closing date or be very specific on price because they each need to walk away with a certain amount of equity to start their new financial lives. Flexibility in both cases is going to be valuable. Dan, tell us about the final D. The final D is debt. And if you haven't noticed already, this is what the remainder of the episode is going to be about. So I'm going to pull up a report called CMHC's Residential Mortgage Industry Report. You can find it on Google by searching the report by the same name. CMHC puts this out on a quarterly basis. Or again, if you want to subscribe to the Patreon, if you want to watch along to see all of the charts that we're going to be using throughout each episode, then there'll be a link in the show notes to that. So this chart heading shows annual bars indicating mortgage delinquency for each type of mortgage under four different categories. The first one is chartered banks, which is less than 0.2% delinquent. Credit unions is even less delinquent than that. Then we have other non-bank lenders like MFCs, trusts, insurance companies have a delinquency somewhere between chartered banks and credit unions. And then finally, the most delinquent and still less than 1% is MIEs or mortgage investment entities like MIX, mortgage investment corporations. Yeah, the chart heading reads, mortgages in arrears delinquent for 90 or more days continued its downward trend across all lender types. So your chartered banks would be you know, the list includes known as the colloquially known as the big five in Canada, RBC, TD, Scotia, BMO, and CIBC. And then they're, you know, quote unquote, second tier HSBC, National Bank, Laurentian Bank of Canada, and Canada Western Bank. 
And next on the list is the credit unions that we discussed. And I actually really like talking about credit unions because I think for local investors, we have to remember credit unions do have a mandate to recirculate or reinvest capital that they get, the deposits that they get into that local community. So they're often really, really good lenders for local real estate investors who are trying to create mm-hmm. housing for that local community. The top one to three credit unions in each province based on asset size and in the top 100 largest credit unions. So these are within the, the top 100 largest credit unions in the country. In British Columbia, we have Van City, Coast Capital, and First West Credit Union. Manitoba, we have Steinbach, Assiniboine, and Cambrian Credit Union. In Ontario, we have Meridian, Desjardins, Ontario Credit Union, and Alterna Savings. In Quebec, Desjardins Group includes 219 Case Populaires, which is the Franco version of a credit union, mostly located in Quebec and Ontario, who serve almost 5 million members. In Alberta, we have Service, Connect First, and Vision Credit Union. In Saskatchewan, we have Connexus, Affinity, and Innovation Credit Union. In New Brunswick, UNI Financial Cooperation and Bayview Credit Union. Nova Scotia, East Coast, and and Credit Union, Atlantic Credit Union. Newfoundland and Labrador is the Newfoundland and Labrador Credit Union. Great name. And PEI is Provincial Credit Union. Yeah. And next is the other non-bank lenders such as insurance companies like Desjardins outside of their credit union division, GWL or Great West Life, which we should all be familiar with. They're they're large in both the insurance and lending space. And then alternative lenders like EQ Bank, Quest Mortgage, Home Trust, Fisgard, First National, Firm Capital, and MCAP. And finally, we have MIEs or mortgage investment entities. Usually they charge a little bit of higher rates. They're a little bit more creative, often investor focused. People like you and I, if you want to invest in entities like this, can invest through registered accounts, meaning they're eligible for RRSP, RRIF, RESP, TFSA, etc. Um, mix have to have at least 20 shareholders and no shareholder can hold more than 25% of total capital. Their tax investors pay tax on the flow through, similar to REITs. MIC investments cannot be made outside of Canada. Both properties and investors must be within the country. So they have a lot of ways that they have to diversify their risk, although not subject to as strict of lending rules as chartered banks because they're not systemic or globally significant. MICs are audited and must disclose their financial reports annually. Some examples of this, Calvert, who we've worked with on events and, and we've done content with, AP Capital MIC, MCAN, CMI, Atrium Mortgage Investment Corporation. Yeah. So Dan, on this chart, you can see that every single type of mortgage has seen a decline in mortgage arrears. This means that there's decrease in people failing to pay their mortgages. So that doesn't exactly indicate that we're heading into a period of distress selling. In fact, I would think it would illustrate quite the opposite. I totally agree. And that's what's so interesting to me about this point in time. There's this idea in Canada that Canadians will literally go to the food bank before they stop paying their mortgages or you know, they'll stop feeding their family before they'll stop paying their mortgages and they'll stop <laughs> paying any other type of debt first. But also what's no, not shown on the chart is individual private mortgages, which is where you know when I broke down that original chart that I showed – the trend up in power of sales, most of the power of sales that we're seeing are in individual private lenders. Yeah, good point. And an individual private mortgage is when one individual lends money to another individual in the form of a mortgage. And we talk about this in other episodes, including the VTB episode, which which falls into this category. The money could be cash savings, or it could even be borrowing from a HELOC, 
which is quite common, but you know, don't tell Dan you did it because we know how he feels about that. It is interesting actually, because in that note, like a lot of people who are borrowing from HELOCs, their rates moving up right now. And so this spread, like let's say you're borrowing at a HELOC at 3% last year and you're lending it out at 10%. Now all of a sudden you're borrowing at five or six or 7% and you're lending out at 10%. And so your spread on the rate just changed from you're making 7% return and now you're making a 3% return. You have much less incentive to do that as an investor, right? Or as a lender. And so now you're seeing a lot of those those individuals fail to renew those. And I'll, I'll mention that actually a little bit here once I get to the next piece. So I'm going to jump to figure 2.2 in the same report, CMHC residential mortgage industry report for fall 2022. New one should be coming out soon and we'll definitely cover it. But you can see a marked increase in credit card delinquency, for example, on this chart in mortgage holders. You can see an increase in delinquency in all types of debt, credit cards, lines of credit, and auto loans and consumers without a mortgage. Not that they don't matter, but you know they don't matter to the context of the discussion about homeownership and distressed homeowners. Also pulling up two tweets from Ben Rabidou, who's Edge Realty Analy- Analytics, if anybody knows or does, sorry, doesn't know about them. I'll link them in the show notes. Awesome report, puts out on a monthly basis. If you're in the real estate industry, I would highly recommend that you subscribe to it. Consumer insolvencies were up 27% year over year in August of this year. And if I jump over to his his monthly report, which again, I highly recommend, Canadian household debt to income continues to rise. Canadian net worth is being dragged down by falling real estate. Canadian bankruptcy proposal filings are up 19% year over year in... Wow. Yeah. And that's in October. And that's led by a 32% increase in British Columbia. So... And then business insolvencies are up 32% year over year. And if you scroll to the very, very, almost the very end of this report, there's a what I would call one of the most important statements of the entire report. And this is why I highly recommend anyone follows Ben Rabideau, but also why that CMHC report can not often give us the full picture of the data. Can you read that quote for me there, Nick? The problem is that the data lags so badly that it is nearly useless as a forecasting tool. For starters, the data as of September, CMHC's report that we're referring to here, that's stale to begin with. But because of bank reporting requirements, some mortgages aren't reported as delinquent until they are 180 days late. So in other words, the data captures people who stopped making payments as far back as March. Now, Dan, you also wanted to review figure 2.4 from the same CMHC report. Figure 2.4 shows fewer mortgage borrowers switching to a conventional lender as it becomes increasingly difficult to qualify under the current interest rate environment. Yeah, so this one's interesting from my perspective because I think it also ties into figure 1.6 from the CMHC report, which shows that approval rates are declining for both home purchases and renewals. What we're seeing here is that people are having a hard time qualifying. Usually people will step up in their mortgage product. So, you know, for example, if you're buying a home with a short-term private mortgage product, like the example that I was just using, you often would intend to get rid of that within six to 12 months. Nobody signs up to pay 10 to 12% interest forever, right? Nobody in the right mind would possibly think that that's, that's their ultimate objective. When we know that there is, you know, or there was two to 3% money out in the market, or even in today's market, five to 6% money out there in the market. So they're often intending to get rid of that private with a B side as an example. So you go from, let's call it the C mortgage product to the B mortgage product, 
with a better rate. Similarly, if somebody is buying with a B-side mortgage product, then they usually intend to replace it with an A-side eventually to get a better rate. I actually just got trapped in a mortgage because I bought a year and a half ago on the B-side and expected to renew with an A at a better rate. And now my A rate is far worse than than the B rate. I am getting an A, but it's way worse money. So what we're seeing happening right now is the opposite. People are being pushed to renew with more lenient lenders at higher interest rates because they don't qualify with traditional lenders. All of these, from my perspective, are indications that we could see a spike in distressed sales from debt in the coming months. You can even see an uptick in the power of sale listings in Ontario. Okay, so hold up a minute. I'm sure everyone is dying to know what a power of sale is because I thought distressed properties went into foreclosure. So this is the interesting part because whenever people think of the market crashing, they think of the US in 2008 and they think foreclosure. The key differences in Canada is a power of there. Some provinces have power of sale and some provinces have a foreclosure. So in a power of sale, the lender sells the property. So they're forcing the, the owner of the property to sell the property. In a foreclosure, the lender actually takes possession of the property. They're foreclosing on the property. In a power of sale, the former homeowner gets the excess profits from the sale of the property. So the bank actually wouldn't get a profit in this situation if the property has gone up in value. In foreclosure, the former homeowner gets nothing because the bank has already taken the property from it. It doesn't belong to the owner, the original owner anymore. The power of sale process takes around six months. A foreclosure can take over a year. And we're going to get more specific on the actual preceding timelines when we when we pull up a site from a, an actual bankruptcy trustee who handles this kind of stuff. Do you want to quickly go through the Loans Canada link here, Nick, foreclosure versus power of sale by on a province by province basis? Yeah, for sure. Let's start with the where power of sale is most common. Right at home here in Ontario for us, we go out east to Newfoundland, New Brunswick, and PEI where power of sale is more common. Then let's look at foreclosures, British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Quebec, and Nova Scotia are all more, let's say, are, are, you see foreclosures happening more often there than you would power of sale. Yeah, it is interesting because, I mean, you know, a lot of investors want to get distressed property deals and a lot of people are thinking about foreclosures. And, and I think you need to understand you know, actually, another phenomenon in the U.S. is something called jingle mail and or like where you could, you know, you heard of just people giving their keys back to the lender where you can just walk away from the deal. And it's not to say you can walk away without your credit being affected or whatever. Like those things all suck. You still failed to fulfill a, a liability obligation. But in the U.S., people were just walking away from their homes. There's only one province in Canada where you can do that. Do you know what it is, Nick? Quebec? Alberta. It's Alberta. Alberta is wow, the only, Alberta? I think. Alberta? Alberta. Alberta's really out here leading the charge on, on all these different things. They keep on coming up. Yeah, it is funny. Very topical right now. A very topical province. So let's just quickly go through a little bit more elaborately the differences between a foreclosure and a power of sale. So foreclosure proceedings, this is from Hoys Michelos Associates, which is hoys.com is their website. They're bankruptcy tr trustees. I interact with them a lot on, on Twitter. Doug Hoys is an awesome guy. He has a podcast as well, actually, mostly about consumer proposals and debt and credit markets and stuff like that. And he's actually one of the sources of Ben Rabideau's report on the um, on the consumer insolvency data increasing. So basically, you have a lot of the same legal documents, and both procedures start with a notice of sale. So basically, person fails to pay their mortgage, bank sends them, lender sends them a notice of fail, then a statement of claim followed by shortly by the writ of possession. It is in the statement of claim that you'll see whether the action chosen for your property is a foreclosure or a power of sale. 
as a homeowner, you need to be aware of the fundamental differences between both options. So I'm going to be power of sale here and Nick's going to be foreclosure. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's good too, because I'm Ontarian and you're British Columbian, right? There we go. So in a power of sale, the lender obtains the right to sell. In a foreclosure, the lender obtains legal title or ownership. In a power of sale, the process can begin as soon as 15 days after the first missed payment. However, in a foreclosure, it usually begins after three to six months after your first missed payments. So keep those timelines in, in your head as well, because we know that CMHC's delinquency data is 90 days or up to 120 days based on what Ben, ben Rabideau was saying. So a lot of these properties could actually have already been taken to power of sale or foreclosed on and already sold maybe and closed before they even show up as delinquent in that data that we were just mentioning. So this is again, where it's hard to really, I'm a data guy, I love data, but it's hard to often use it when it, you know, we don't have the richest data in Canada. And also when it's, you know, extremely outdated at exactly. that point, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's a, it's such a moving target, but like, you know, it's a moving target that's moving very, very quickly and very, very laggy at the same time. Right. Well, yeah, you can see an uptrend in power of sales on individual privates, which aren't monitored by CMHC. There's literally no way for them to monitor these. There's no federal regulation on, on privates, right? Yeah. So, But then, you know, so we're seeing an uptick and yet the delinquency rates are coming down. So I think what will happen is you'll see, you know, a lot of the regulated mortgage products start going these routes, maybe even even if they're just becoming delinquent. The market will already know because they're hearing about it or it, it's not a rumor any, anymore, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news, and then we'll get see it reported in the CMHC information. But in a power of sale, there's somebody doesn't have to go to court. So there's not as much of a lag associated with court backlogs. So it's a much more agile process. So there's no court involved in the notice in a power of sale process. However, in a foreclosure, the lender files suit in court and the court issues the demand for payment. So you're fully relying on a court. The court plays a very integral role in a foreclosure. And one of the things I actually want to mention in both of these processes, because they're slow, like when you look at the US, people walking away from their houses, that was able to create what you would call a free fall velocity in pr house prices in the States. And I don't think we'll ever get there. I think the fastest velocity we saw in price drops happened, you know, 2017 would be a decent example, but probably this year, right? Like that was quick. But in Canada, markets typically tends to grind down. You want a good example of that or a good analysis of that? Go back to episode one of this podcast. The market tends to grind down very slowly. And the reason for that is because when you get distressed properties, in the fastest case scenario, the process can begin as soon as 15 days after the mispayment. But the lender also has a duty to sell the property for fair market value. We're going to get to this in a second. But that means that they can only do price reductions so quickly. They can't because... If they fire sale the property, if they rifle it off as quick as humanly possible, that's going to require them to reduce the price really low and make it very compelling for lots of buyers to want it. And usually when you're seeing high amounts of distressed properties, the market's kind of slow. So power of sale process typically takes a long time to sell the property because they have to protect the value for the seller. And we know that the foreclosure process takes a long time to execute. Both of these slow down the velocity of price decreases in Canadian real estate. And from my perspective, legislatively is one of the reasons it takes the market longer in Canada to find a bottom than it would in the US in 2008, 2009. But I digress. The In a power of sale, the <laughs> redemption period, usually 35 to 40 days, during which the borrower who is power of sale, who's lost their home, can bring the mortgage current so they can pay all the arrears, catch up, 
and they can actually get possession of the property again. Now, if you've noticed, most things that power of sale and foreclosure that we've talked about so far have been quite different. This one's quite similar because the redemption period usually takes 30 days. However, in this case for foreclosures, it can actually be extended upon request. Yeah. I guess the difference is, you know, like I've heard of examples in a power of sale where people, if the property's on the market the entire time, you can bring the mortgage up to you know, until basically the day the property closes, I've heard. But I don't know if that's necessarily true, but these are kind of the things that individuals talk about in the industry, like real estate professionals on sort of how to... I have seen a couple of them over the past couple of years that, you know, ended up getting rescued. When values are going up, it's probably not hard to find a lender to come in and give you the money to buy out the mortgage, but... We're, totally. I was going to say, that it, no, it completely depends on what kind of environment and market you're in. And we are not in one that treats these nicely. If you're in a if you're buying, you know, power sales or foreclosures in a raising and when you know when prices are going up and, and rates are remaining steady, then you're in playing an entirely different game than we are now. Yeah, for sure. In a power of sale, the lender has a duty to sell for a fair market value. Whereas in a foreclosure, there is no duty to sell for the highest price. So this one's interesting. And so this is the only piece of information I can give you because everybody's always like, how do we find distressed, foreclosed, or power of sale properties? This is probably the only advantage in the finding part. If you can find lenders, individual private lenders or mix or whatever it is, if you can find an, a way to tap into those individuals and get those deals, the foreclosed deals before they hit the market, because a power of sale, if you have the duty to sell at fair market value in a power of sale situation, you're probably going to have to go to the MLS in order to maximize the exposure that the property gets in order to get fair market value. In a foreclosed situation... They don't have a duty to get the highest price. They just want it off their books. They don't care if they take a loss. Well, they probably care if they take a loss on it, So, they, but they don't have a duty. They don't have a legal obligation to sell for the highest price that they can possibly get it or, or for a fair market value. So you have to find these things before they ever end up on the market because sometimes a lender mm -hmm. might say, you know what? I don't want to deal with the switching costs. I don't want to deal with having it on the market or whatever it is. And, and so you might be able to front run that property even getting to the market. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the lender is not in the game of buying and selling real estate. They're in the game of lending money. So for them, that's a depreciating asset, losing money. You might not be able to get it for you know 50% off, but you might be able to get it for 10 to 15% off if you can get there first. In a power of sale, the equity or profit is paid to the borrower. So anything less the arrears, interest owing, damages if applicable, there's usually not much left over. But if there is, if there's equity in the property, that gets paid to the borrower, so the person who originally owned the home before it went power of sale. In a foreclosure, the borrower is forgotten about because any equity or profit is kept by the lender. Yeah, I mean, the lender becomes the owner in that situation, so the equity exactly. is already gone by the time they take possession of the property. In a power of sale, however, if there is a shortfall, the lender can sue for that shortfall, so they can try and collect that money from the borrower. Whereas in a foreclosure, the lender cannot sue for any shortfall. Right. So what does this mean when you're negotiating with these types of properties? In a power of sale, negotiating with a lender who has a duty to protect the seller's equity, you're not really getting a deal on power of sales. The real deal kind of happens pre-power of sale, as I was mentioning, or pre-foreclosure, where you can negotiate with someone who's in distress in a, or in a distressed situation and try to help them avoid power of sale or foreclosure. And I actually, I've known some guys who are in, you know, maybe sketchier loan spaces or sketchier purchase acquisition strategy spaces who have ads up 
you know, we buy distressed properties. You see this all over the states, right? And, you know, there's people in the wholesaling space who are offering these lifeline or rescue real estate programs for people where they'll either give you a basically a loan to own <laughs> private mortgage, which is, you know, sketchy, but whatever. Or they'll offer to buy your house, probably at a not an exceptionally good value. But for a lot of people, you know, and, and you have to think about the logic here. It's like, okay, I'm going to, maybe I'm not going to get, I'm going to walk away with nothing. I'm not going to get any equity on this house, but my credit will be intact, right? I can repay all of those creditors. And so finding deals where you can create a win-win situation, not by doing low no, not by like, I use that as an example, because I know that people are successfully executing these models at scale by putting ads out, by putting lawn signs out and whatever it is. But by finding people who need help, they need somebody who buys houses. Wholesalers are getting lots of calls right now, you know, that, oh, hey, like, would you buy my house right now? I mean, or would you buy my investment property? It's cash flow negative and interest rates too high or whatever it is. In foreclosure, it's a little bit different than in the power of sale situation. You're negotiating with a lender who now owns the property, likely at a loss and wants to sell it quickly. And they often want big deposits to avoid more headaches down the line. Yeah, I think another thing to remember is in regardless of power sale or foreclosure, you should be prepared to close fast because in both situations, the owner would have been forced to vacate the property. So a fast closing is going to be a huge advantage. And how you can do that is by being prepared, right? So go get a mortgage pre-approval, engage with credit unions, engage with private lenders, have a big deposit ready and have that strategy. And, you know, I think a lot of this stuff, Dan, right, like power of sale foreclosure, I think a lot of people remember the housing crash of 2008 and like all, you know, the so-called real estate vultures that just went and bought dozens and dozens of properties. Well, look, those people play a role too. What's going to happen to those properties if no one goes and buys them, right? I mean, I think there's right ways to do things when things are going wrong. And that's what we should be able to focus on right now is how do we create win-win situations for you know, the lender, yourself, and the potential seller of that power of sale or foreclosed property. There's ways to do it. And it's about getting creative, especially in times like this, when there are going to be tons of opportunities presented that probably a lot of us haven't seen before in a market because we haven't experienced it. It hasn't happened in a long time. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, and it goes back to, you know, this kind of shark analogy that we have made at the beginning. Don't be a bottom feeder, right? Don't be an ambulance chaser. Like there's going to be pain in the market. Canada's due for, by most forecasts, a mild to moderate recession. And that's going to create economic pain for a lot of households in Canada. Any good real estate transaction comes from finding a win-win situation. And there are people who will be in distressed positions that will need help and that you can create value for by getting them out of a situation, by buying the property off of them, maybe at a discount, or maybe they're lending you a portion of the equity that they have because they can't, or you know, maybe they let you pay or defer some of the costs, or they build in some renovations, or whatever it is, it's creativity, right? That's going to help that where you as an investor are going to help create value for potential sellers who need it right now in this market. Whereas, you know, if you're a bottom feeder, if you're just kind of like really trying those loan to own strategies, trying those distressed acquisition strategies, look, sharks eventually come along, and they eat the bottom feeders too, right? So... Yeah. And even on that, you know, it's, I think anyone that's been doing this for any amount of time knows that reputation plays a huge role in real estate investing. Canada is a big place geographically, but a small place population wise, and even a smaller place when you start to get into these kind of niche things like real estate investing, where, you know, there's probably a couple hundred thousand, maybe a few million people across the whole country that are doing this actively and seriously. 
and you need to protect your reputation. So go in and create win-win situations. There will be a ton of opportunity, but that doesn't mean that you need to be taking advantage of anyone. Real estate's a long-term game, so make sure you're playing it as such. Absolutely. Anything else you want to add there? That's it. Had a lot of fun playing Mr. Foreclosure. Thanks for being Mr. Power of Sale over there. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for checking out the episode, everybody. Make sure you leave us a review and tell all your friends who want to get into real estate investing as their New Year's resolution is to buy a cash flow positive, sensible real estate investment. This Ooh, would be a great it. podcast for them to check out. So we'd appreciate it if you shared it with all your friends and family. And check us out on Patreon as well. We'll have a link in the show notes if you want to see the video click through of this episode where you can see all of the charts that we're referencing. Thanks a lot. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.